Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Mac and Jack Sports Show as we're on live Thursday through Sunday, 8 to 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and the Roku channel at Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning, everybody. I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, Jack Hirsch, legendary Hall of Fame boxing writer, as we get you updated on, to, on today's sports. Uh, you know, we, we were away for a week. We uh, Our last show was on Sunday with a big football show, so we come back on Thursday, kind of get up to date with everything. And today, Jack, on the show, we have, for the first time this year, our uh, head coach from the Connecticut Falcons semi-pro football team, Matt Tomczewski, uh, semi-pro football will be starting up here soon. And we do carry it over our Northeast Streaming Sports. And we personally know Matt has been on a lot last year with some of the players. We also have on a couple boxing guests, Jack. We have Santos Perez from Miami Herald, a boxing writer. We also have on Ed Levine, the IBO president of the sanctioning body, um, the International Boxing. It's not association, Jack. What is it? It's not. IBO, International Boxing Organization. Organization. Uh, that's right. one, of the sanctioning, was... one of the sanctioning bodies. We think of normally the four sanctioning bodies, the WBC, the WBA, the IBF, the WBO, but the IBO is around. I mean, you know, they could hold their own with the others at times, and we'll hear what Ed Levine has to say, their president. Well, definitely will, and it'll be a great having them on. So, Jack... You know, we, we come on after the week. We go on during the playoffs when we're on Sunday. Uh, you know, we have the games on Saturday and Sunday now. And so if we got time, we'll go over a couple of games I thought really interesting. But first, let's get everybody updated uh, with the NBA standings. And first, you have the Bulls at 27 and 12. You have the Nets at 26 and 14. The Heat at 26 and 18. The Bucks at 26 and 17. The 76ers at 23 and 7, 17, and in sixth, the Cleveland Cavaliers at 24 and 18. In the West, you have the Suns at 31 and 9. The Warriors at 20 and 10. The Grizzlies on a 10-game winning streak at 29 and 14. The Jazz at 28 and 14. Dallas Mavericks at 22 and 19. And the Denver Nuggets at 20 and 19. Um, the Bulls, uh, the the Bulls got beat by the Nets last night. Um, you know, the Bulls have a good defense. Kyrie Irving returned. He really didn't do much. I think he had four points or something crazy like that. But Durant Harden were outstanding, Jack, in that game. And maybe Chicago was worried a little bit about too much about Irving and not concentrating on Durant. And I doubt that they were so worried about Irving that they wouldn't concentrate on Durant. Durant's the main guy on the Nets. He's a better player than Kyrie Irving, and Kyrie Irving's outstanding. Don't get me wrong. Nets broke it open in the third uh, period. And James Harden really played a great, great game. For the Nets, it was a bit of a statement game because the Chicago Bulls have been an elite team in the NBA this year. They've taken a big step forward. And if they're not in the mix to win the NBA championship this year, they're about a year or two away. I mean, they're really, really on the rise. So for the Nets, it was a statement game. It was a reminder of what they're capable of doing when they have their big three there, Durant, Harden, and Irving. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, Durant and Harden run that team, and they're both in at the same time. They really don't need uh, Kyrie. They really don't. Harden uh, really can score. Uh, I, dip, I disagree, Mac. Mac, is as much contempt as I might have for Kyrie Irving, I recognize he is a great player. Yeah. And he and he is a difference maker between the Nets taking the next step in winning the NBA championship and not. We've been down this road before with Kyrie Irving with the Boston Celtics. They were one game away from going to the NBA Finals, but Kyrie Irving was out. Had he been in, the Celtics would have gone to the NBA Finals, maybe won the NBA championship. Last year, the Nets. Kyrie Irving was out. Had he been in against the Milwaukee Bucks at the end, chances are the Nets would have advanced, and maybe it would have been them winning the NBA championship and not the Milwaukee Bucks. He's a difference maker. You know, you know I don't, 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 I just don't agree with everything you're saying there. I don't think he's a difference maker because when he's shooting the ball, it takes a ball out of Durant's hands and Harden's hands. So I really don't believe that he's a difference maker. Last night he sure wasn't. So I, I mean, I, I disagree with what you're saying, Jack. I think Kyrie Irving is a lot like Westbrook, but he can he can shoot the ball better. I think Kyrie Irving is not a team player at all, and I don't think that he adds anything uh, to the Nets except takes the ball and shoots the ball. And I think the Nets are a better team without Kyrie Irving. I think they have a better shot at getting the championship without Kyrie Irving because I think their benches and their, and their role players are just as good. So I don't agree with everything you said there. I don't think Kyrie Irving is the reason why the Nets will go to the championship. Not at all. I think it's uh, – okay. go ahead. Well, we can go back and forth. Is Kyrie Irving selfish? Absolutely. Do the Nets have a weak organization, an organization that lacks character? Absolutely. Do they have a coach who basically defers to the players who won't stand up to them and Steve Nash? Absolutely. I mean, James Harden is one of the great scorers in NBA history. It should be Kyrie Irving Irving playing the point and using James Harden's firepower along with Kevin Durant's firepower. But for whatever reasons, you call it selfish or not, Kyrie Irving told James Harden what he wants him to do. You play point guard, let me score. And James Harden doesn't want to make waves. So James Harden just wants to fit in. Kevin Durant is a good friend of Kyrie Irving. As great a player as Kevin Durant is, I've said this numerous times, he's not a leader. He is not a leader at all. He's just merely a great, great player, okay? One of the better players I've ever seen, but he doesn't take a leadership role. Kyrie Irving, as much contempt as we have for him, he is a leader, Okay, he tells the other guys what to do, and they follow, maybe not a good leader, but nevertheless a leader. They follow Kyrie Irving, okay? And and that's been to, it was to the Celtics undoing the two years he was there. It's been to the Nets undoing so far. But listen, if it all ends with a championship, then it becomes worth it. But I'll admit, it's hard sometimes to root for the Nets, even if you're a Net fan. Yeah, I, listen, I, I just don't think he adds anything to the team because when he's scoring all the points, that means Durant's not and Harden's not. So it really, it really, in fact, there was some stat I was looking at uh, last year, I think it was, whenever he scores over 30, the Nets lose. So I'm not, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan. Not a, I, he's a great basketball player. I'll be all a famer. There's no doubt about it. But as far as team chemistry goes, uh, he's no good, period. That's, that's all I got to say about that. Um, the Grizzlies, Jack. 
I mean, they're playing some great ball over there in the West. I didn't, I didn't even think about the Grizzlies uh, cracking a top six, and there they are um, playing very good basketball over there, Jack. Yeah, I mean, what if they won like 10 in a row? And Jay yeah. Morant is establishing himself as one of the best players in the NBA. And it wasn't that long ago that there was a little bit of a debate uh, in the draft, Zion Williamson, Jay Morant. Everyone knew Jay Morant was going to be a top-of-the-line pro, that he was really going to be really, really good. We all knew that. But this is Zion Williamson. So if the Pelicans would have passed on Zion Williamson and taken Jay Morant and Zion would have turned out to be a superstar, it's the kind of pick you never let down. It's the kind of pick that gets you fired if you take Jay Morant and he's merely a very good player and Zion's a superstar. So you kind of get a little conservative, you know, don't take the gutsy pick, Jay Morant. But Morant, I'll tell you, is one of the best players in the game. And when we think of the top teams in the NBA, we don't think of the Memphis Grizzlies. We don't think of them at all. And now they're coming out of nowhere. Might they yeah. continue this run? I mean, who knows? Uh, you, you don't, and you know the way it's worked out right now. Um, Zion Williamson is just—I mean, uh, what are you going to do? You can't. He's been hurt. Yeah. He's been hurt. It still might turn out to be the right pick at the end. But listen, you never know what teams we think are on the rise. Look at the Atlanta Hawks with Trey Young last year. They beat the Sixers in the playoffs. They seem to be the upcoming team in the NBA. And this year, they're struggling. They're a few games under 500. They've been a major, major disappointment. Instead of continuing to take steps forward, they've went backwards. And that's been like a bit of a shock. And Trey Young, who is supposed to be one of the faces of the NBA going forward, is just another guy this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see what happens by the end of the year, Jack. Maybe they kick it in. It's, it's, a, it's still, what, half season or so? You're talking... You're talking at 24 and 18, you're at, what, 40, 43 games? It's approximately games. the half season. We're starting yeah. the second half now. Yeah. But, yeah. but listen, half the season, let's face it, it's a big body of work. It's not a oh, sure. small body of work. I agree. And if I the agree. team has struggled the first half, there's a good chance they'll struggle the second half, even though teams have been known to get it together, and also teams that have gotten off to nice starts the first half. It sometimes starts to unravel the second half. So they're going to be different storylines, like the Cleveland Cavaliers and a lot of good young players. They're standing at 24 and 18 right now. They've been a pleasant surprise with Jared Allen and Mobley. Even with Colin Sexton out, they've been performing really well. Let's see if they can keep it up. The Washington Wizards have been hovering around 500. Let's see that they keep it up with their chemistry. The Knicks at 500. Are they going to stop playing the way they did last year? Are they going to basically stay the same? Are they going to slide backwards? Uh, certain things are going to happen in the NBA where one team is suddenly going to take off, you know, unexpectedly and be good. And another team that's been good is all of a sudden going to start to plummet. I agree. I agree. Good morning to you too, David. Glad to have you aboard other show as you regularly come in and we appreciate it trust me um let's get to the college uh basketball real quick i'm just gonna give you the standings jack real early yet and really it really doesn't ramp up till we start hitting around march anyway um but right now baylor's in first at 15 and one followed by gonzaga at 12 and 2 ucla at 10 and 1 auburn 
at 15 and 1, USC at 13 and 1, Arizona at 12 and 1, Purdue at 13 and 2, Duke at 13 and 2, Kansas at 13 and 2, and Michigan State at 14 and 2. So those are your rankings right now. I really haven't started getting into college basketball yet and following the, the players and teams, but with college football closing out, you know, I'm going to be over there peeking at them too. So, well, two storylines, I think. Uh, this is supposed to be Coach K's last year, right. I believe. So, for sentimental reasons, are people going to be rooting for Duke to do it one last time? You know, a Coach K. But also there's a Gonzaga element. Will they ever win the national championship? Gonzaga has been knocking on the door. It seems a long, long time. Is this the year they're finally going to get over the top? Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, great program in the top four almost all the time now. So, um, you know, great program there for Gonzaga. Uh, the Big East, I'm hoping, starts making a little run too here at the end of the year too. Because, Are they still uh, around the Big East? Yeah, I can go, uh, right? Okay, I mean, <laughs> run me the line from Rocky with Spider Rico. Rocky says, yeah, I won last night. Spider Rico and his brother-in-law, Paul, is, uh, another guy in the bar, I mean, said this. He's still around? Yeah, Maybe. right? Wouldn't it be great if they recaptured <laughs> glory years? I mean, but... I think the closest... Uh, the closest one right now, I think, is Villanova. If they're still there, if they're not in the Atlantic, I'm not sure where Villanova is anymore. Uh, but they are. I think they're like a sitting at 12 or something like that. Um, so let's talk a little NHL scores in the National Hockey League. Uh, well, at least the divisions. Let's set that up. Let's not go into scores. Let's just talk about the divisions real quick. In Atlantic uh, Division Eastern Conference, you have the Panthers in first at 24 and seven. Tampa Bay following them at 24 and nine. Toronto at 23 and 9, and the Boston Bruins right now are sitting at 2011th in that, in that fourth spot. In the Metropolitan, you have the Hurricanes at 24 and 7, followed by the Rangers at 23 and 10, Washington at 28, and the hot Pittsburgh Penguins, who I think only lost one game in the last 20 or something crazy, is at 21 and 9. Uh, in the Central, uh, division of the West Conference, you have the Predators at 24-11, the Avalanche at 22-8, the Blues at 21-10, the Wild at 21-10, and, and finally, in the Pacific Division of the of the uh, Western of the Western Conference, you have the Knights 23 and 14, those Mighty Ducks at 19 and 13, the Kings at 18 and 13, and the Sharks at 20 and 16, Jack. So Mac, again, going, Mac, you—I know how meticulous and organized you are. How is this a test to remember these standings, Mac? All these points. Well, I just want to, and on our first show to to back to get everybody up to date where the teams are at before we start hitting them with the scores all week. So I want—I wanted to, you know, get that set, David. Yes, we do know that the Yankees hired a minor league baseball woman for their manager. Just a couple of days ago, Dave. That yeah, didn't just, just saw, come over. He just saw an ESP, ESPN. Let me, <laughs> let, let me let you in on something. I was at the Yankee press conference yesterday with uh, with with uh, the announcement of the new woman, uh, Deborah Grable, uh, I think it is. I, I, I was just there with Brian Cashman at one of the uh, many news organizations. Uh, there, she's a she's a delightful young woman. She's been in baseball for almost ten years, strength and conditioning coach over with the Cardinals. 
moved over because he's a bat instructor. Um, and Cashman kind of surprised her uh, with the offer to be the manager there. And she talked a lot about Jack and and it'll be on it'll be on the spreading the news the exact things that they talked about because I took the notes for uh, Doc over there. But she talked a lot more about getting to know the players, getting to know their families. Uh, you know, with the new kids coming in at at the Division A, the lowest level, she wanted to help them adjust. You know, of course, she'll help out in batting instructors, but she sees herself as a administrator, a person there to to delegate authority to the different coaches and be there to get them competitive working as a team. And a lot of it has to do with the personal aspects of these young players. Him and as being, you know, the young star that, that came from, uh, from, I think it was the South America. I'm not sure if it was Cuba or where, where he came from. I, I don't know that exactly off the top of my head, but he's supposed to be a new Ma Mickey Mantle or something. And she discussed how he, she was just talking to him about everything but baseball. You know, his family, how we adjust to the United States, character, stuff like that. Seems like a, a great young lady, Jack. Yeah, but there's a little bit of a danger there, even though I'm not saying she's not doing it the right way with the personal touch. She's going to have to make some tough decisions down the line, cutting players, giving players less playing time. Sure, sure. And you become too emotionally involved with players and their families. It makes it harder to make those decisions. You're less likely to cut a player. You're less likely to maybe take them out of the lineup because you want them to succeed so badly. Okay. Well, it, it might be a little hard to look at certain things objectively. I'm not saying she's doing things the wrong way. Her approach is refreshing. Okay. It really is. But there is a little element of danger there as far as doing your job the way you're supposed to, because this is a type of business where you have to make some decisions where you put your emotions aside. Okay. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. But, but, you know, but, you know, you know, even, even to the professional level, as you heard Byron Williams say about Bill Parcells and they cut Byron Williams, by the way, um, he knows his family, he knew his mom, he knew, you know, his dad. I mean, they know all that information because you gotta have, you gotta be somewhat personal uh, with the players and, and be able to communicate with the players that way. So if you're not knowing all these things and talking to them, it's hard to communicate. And a lot of coaches, a lot of coaches make the, the, the mistake of being standoffish with the players. That's the worst thing you could do, Jack. Mac, I couldn't, if I were a coach of uh, any team, I can't greet the guy's wife and kids, talk, smile, and then cut them the next day. No, you have to, Jack. Hard. Hard. I, I, I just, you know, it's hard when you're that emotionally involved. It doesn't mean you don't care for them a great deal. And it doesn't mean you don't interact and have these one-on-one -on -one discussions about more than just the sport. But they have to understand all along that you as the manager, you as the coach, might have to make these emotional decisions that you really don't like okay well, of to they know that they're professionals jack they know that they got to perform or they're, they're not going to be there that's that's just a totally different subject what i'm saying is you know a lot of coaches that are standoffish you don't you don't get the 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 personalization with the players 
And what that what happens there is you, you kind of put a wall between you and the players, especially when something's going wrong. Tom Coughlin had that problem with players a lot until he started getting leadership uh, committees together where he could communicate with them. Parcells really didn't have that 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 problem. Parcells will communicate with you. Uh, Jimmy Johnson would communicate with you. I'm, I'm going football because that's what I know the best. And I imagine Stengel was the same way. I read the old articles where they talked together, and 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 they they weren't friends. Stengel didn't get Dimaggio didn't care much for Stengel the way he. Well, I remember him. I remember the story about Rizzuto when he went through the lineup with him and said, "Yeah, got this. all right." So I mean, I think there was some kind of at least mutual respect uh, there. And you know, she talked about being the first woman in that. But if you watch, start spreading the news, uh, they probably will run the interview uh, there, and you'll be well, more. Let me let me say this in defense: how some people are going to put down this high and say, well, how could you hire a woman? A woman has never played Major League Baseball. They're not qualified. Well, they're wrong on that account. Because let me throw this by you. You take women teams. Men coach women teams all the time. So if a woman is qualified, there's no reason she can't coach a man's team. Because let's face it, who assumes the leadership role in society for the most part? It's the mother's. They assume, the, they assume that leadership role in life in general. So if they could do it in life in general, as long as they understand fully and then expert in the sport that they're coaching, that, that would make them qualified. And they have to be judged on the merits of doing the job. And they can't be judged on gender. Let's say a player who should never get into it with a manager, starting to argue with a, a manager, a male argues with a male. Well, a male player should be able to argue with a female manager, a coach. Well, the you know, same that, way gender that, that, should be into this, it. This would be a whole show for me and you because I got a lot of different opinions on that and not, yeah. don't necessarily agree 100% with everything you're saying, but we'll leave it at that, Jack. So also, let's get into some news from the NBA. Uh, Dillard, uh, Lillard, Damian Lillard, plans to have surgery. In fact, he's going to have it this week to address his abdominal injury. We'll keep him out six to eight weeks. So he's going to miss a big portion. If I had, if you asked me, Mac, most overrated play in the NBA right now, uh, may, it might be Damian Lillard. I mean, he hasn't taken Portland to the next level. He's complained as far as wanting to get out. And they have a big decision to make whether they should resign him or not. And it, well, this Portland, it's going to be big, big money. Well, he's he's still in a contract, Jack. For, he just signed an extension. When did he sign? Are you sure he signed the extension? I, I heard they were talking about it. I don't yeah, believe I think he actually I think, signed I think, it. I think he just signed a five-year extension, Jack. If I'm not mistaken, that's what I that's what I that's what I saw this morning. So Damian Lillard, you know, he would have to be traded if somebody wants to trade him, but they can't just not they can't get rid of him. And maybe he's not playing so well because of his abdominal injury. So yeah, check verify for me. I wasn't aware about the extension. I'm going to yeah. verify because I heard yeah, there was talks about it, but yeah. that was it. And while you're doing that, safety Eric Weddle comes out of retirement to join the Rams after defensive back Jordan Fuller got injured. Uh, so that's another thing on the field for the Rams as they bring somebody else in. And New York Giants owner John Mara, Mara admitted that this is the most embarrassing uh, embarrassed he has been uh, by the state of his franchise. So uh, if he thinks he's embarrassed, 
I'm not, I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go off on that. That would take me into another show too. So Jack, right now, as you're verifying my information. Well, no, 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 no. Listen, I didn't want to really come in. I'm so bored with the Giants. Too bored to no, even. No, I'm talking about that. Yeah, Damian Lillard's extension, Mac. I got to look into it. You're blindsided. I mean, he didn't sign any extension, from my knowledge. Well, one of our listeners, because I got to do the show. Mac, I got to do the show with you. I got to keep on task. With one too. of our listeners out there. You know, look that, do that research, boss. You know, yes, yes. Lillard, yes whether he signed the extension or not, let's, let's, I don't believe he signed it. I would have heard about it, Mac. I right, pride right. myself on keeping on top of these things. Right. I would have known about it. Well, that's you're what making I, it up, Mac. You're making I, it up just to make, kind of make yourself look good, like you have your sources inside the NBA. Well, I from what I read, Jack, that's what I read. But anyway, backstage right now. We have our friend from last year uh, covered uh, their team, the Tar Heels. In fact, he coaches two teams. And there's a lot of news coming out about uh, the the Connecticut Falcons this year. So our, our coach, our friend, coach, head coach Matt Tomczewski is going to come in and, jo- and join us after almost uh, uh, quite a few months. So let's bring up the head coach. How you doing, coach? Hi, coach. You're muted, Coach. Unmute yourself. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, Sorry about that. The two teams, Mac, Mike, not in the same league. That would no. be kind of a, yeah, I mean. No. I could... Well, well. let's, before you start asking questions or something, you don't know nothing about like the Damian Lillard contract, Jack. Let's let's talk to Coach Tomczewski about what the big news is over there. From what I understand, and correct me if I'm right, uh, wrong, Coach, the Falcons and the Tar Heels combined into one team. Is that correct? That is that was correct. Um, it didn't end up following through. Um, okay. Basically, what was what we were doing is we were looking to join the same league together and have um, have divisional teams, a, a lower division, higher division for developmental. Um, but the the Falcons ended up staying spring, which uh, was originally our season. Um, right. It's more in our wheelhouse and. Uh, after we weighed all the options and everything, it just looked like the better move for both organizations to, you know, for them to stay summer and for the Falcons to stay in the spring and do our thing in the spring like we've been doing. So you will have the Falcons in the spring like you did last year and the Tar Heels in the summer league. Yep. The Tar, Tar Heels remain in the ECFL, their summer team. Um, the, the Falcons uh, were offered to go into the ECFL. Um, we, like I said, we, we did uh Way, way out all our options, and we did end up uh, declining that option. Um, we were previously in the TFL, the New York League, which uh, you covered us in last season, which um, you're pretty familiar with. Um, yeah. It was a lot of travel. Um, we were the only Connecticut team. Every team was either New York City or um, Long Island. It was a very, uh, very condensed league. And um, we were given an opportunity to join an independent league this year, which, um, I mean, spans all of New England plus New York. So it gives our guys more exposure, more more teams to play, and you know we're not always traveling in New York City. Um, th- this league has two Connecticut teams, two New York teams, three Mass teams, a New Hampshire team, and two Maine teams. So we we have a we have a wide wide reach now in this league. This league uh, it's it's um, been around for a few years, and it's it's a solid league. It's growing every year, adding good teams, and uh, we, we look forward to. St- to playing in the spring this year in the IFA and 
competing against some of these top teams. You know, you got the returning champs, the New England Bearcats. Um, you got the New York Patriots, who were the you know the runners up. I mean, there's it, it, a couple of the main teams are pretty strong. The Cardinals are strong, so it, it should be a good competitive season this year. All right, all right, great. So that's it. In, it's the Independent Football Association. If I got that yes. name, okay. So, so, coach, on your teams, you had you know from moving from the Falcons, they moved to the Tar Heels. You have a lot of players that go through, stay with you. I do yes. have a lot of returning players coming back uh, next year, coach at your world. Oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely. Um, like I said, we, we lost the summer. We lost by one, one score in the championship. Um, we, we had a very successful season, our first year in that league. Um, the, the guys are chomping at the bit, ready to get back to work and, you know, redeem themselves. Um, and, and that's what's great about having the spring season. You know, a lot of teams are still recruiting, still signing guys up, finding their direction. And our guys are on the field playing football. And, right. you know, like you said, it's not all the guys, but there's a good core group that play spring and summer and they play all the way through. And I mean, that, that gives us a little bit of an advantage. Um, as far as the spring season, you know, we're excited. We played our uh, we played a bowl game, you know, charity bowl Labor Day. We're pretty successful in that. We played a charity bowl right around Thanksgiving. That that was a that was a pretty successful game. Um, unfortunately, we had to cancel the one for Christmas uh, due to weather and you know issues, and so it wasn't it wasn't. We were doing a toy toy drive. It wasn't really smart to do it there in the middle of a rainstorm. So we had to cancel that one. But we do have a, another preseason game coming up in February against uh, a Queens team. And then in March, we play our big rival that we play every year in from Virginia. Um, they're a national, you know, national contender team that constantly is going to the national championship. And every other year we play them, we either go to them in Virginia or they come up to us this year, we get to host. So they come up and play us. It's our little North-South Bowl we play. And then our season kicks off uh, second week of April. There you go. Coach, right, right do you do any recruiting? certain players from certain of the colleges who are obviously not going to go to the NFL who might want to continue to play for love of game. I mean, how do you reach out to them? How do you actually get the players? Do they come to you? Do you recruit? Well, we, we do a mixture of both. Um, a lot of it is word of, word of mouth because, you know, a lot of players know each other. You know, they work out together. They play together. So a lot of it is word of mouth. Um, we, we do get out. We do hit the road and recruit. Um, we, we had uh, – combines um i want to say that was back in october november we had uh october november i believe it was we had combines where we had you know three weekends of you know open open enrollment guys want to come out and try show up you know we, we did you know basically all your normal combine stuff you'd see position stuff for 40s you know basically get get to where everybody's at see, see where everyone is and um i mean we're, we're always taking taking players i mean you know, if, if we don't, if we're not full, it's, it's available to come try out. I mean, once our rosters are closed, we put it up yet. Rosters are closed. You know, thank you very much. But, I mean, we're, we're constantly recruiting. Um, and, and it's a ever-moving game because not only are we recruiting, but we're getting recruited from. So, you know, we have players that, you know, up until a couple weeks ago were ready to go for the season. Now they're going to play arena ball or now they're going to go play um, – you know, go play some other pro league or something where they can get some money or go overseas or something like that. So it's a constant cycle. So we got to keep the recruits fresh and, 
you know, we like to recruit young guys too. I mean, there's guys who don't get into college and it might be for, you know, non-sport related reasons, you know, maybe they're not very good at school. Maybe they're not, you know, so we, we try to help those guys out as well, you know, get them into community college. We have a, a tight, a tight relationship with the Connecticut Juco team, the Wildcats. So, you know, we, we try to, you know, if we got younger guys that would work out over there. We like to send them over there because they play in the summer as well. And, and we all kind of work together and try to basically get these guys from Connecticut up to the next level, because there's a lot of, a lot of talent in Connecticut that gets looked over and we, we just try to give them that Avenue. That's just not available as it used to be. Yeah. Well, I think you could take your best team from, from the ECFL and probably the new league, the IBA and probably beat the UConn football team. Uh, they're just, they're well, just awful. I don't, I don't know if I go that far, but they got to do something up at UConn. They're awful. <laughs> Well, I hired a new coach, so maybe uh, a pretty well-known new, uh, well-known new coach, and maybe they'll end up uh, making a couple uh, steps forward over there. Oh my God, I hate that. Yeah, it's a it's a process, you know. You, you hire you hire somebody, and it's going to take a couple years before you start to see those results, before those recruits start to become upperclassmen, and you know. So, I, I got high hopes for them, to be honest with you. You know, I'm home state guy. I got to root for the home state team. Me but. too. Me too. Me too. Believe me, I do. I, I, I played with a couple of guys that played on UConn uh, in high school, and they a couple of them went to play pro. So they were, they do they do pick them up for UConn every now and then. So, Matt, when I when I went there, I followed you closely. I went out to watch one of the games. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if you if, what you thought about last year as far as upgrading the team anywhere. You got a lot of speed on the team. You got a lot of athletes on the team. I saw last year. Uh, maybe need to get a little bit bigger on the line, maybe on defense and offense. Have, have you guys uh, uh, looked into maybe upgrading at, at those positions? Well, we we have um, added a lot of weight to our O-line. That, that's for sure. Um, we, we've, we've picked up some guys out of state. We've, uh, you know, we, we've, we've really reached out to, to upgrade our line size-wise. Um, all our guys on the line last year, I mean, they, they were – they were some of the hardest working all linemen in the yeah. game, you know, because they yeah. all were about 50 pounds undersized, 60 pounds undersized. Um, but this year we were able to pick up some upgrades. We got a, a lot of depth on the O-line, which we all know is huge. You know, those big guys are up there banging each other and, you know, it, they get banged up and they get hurt and they get knocked around and it's good to have depth. So this year we're going into the season with some really good depth on the O and D line which is really going to help us out. We have our, you know, obviously our returning weapons plus, you know, we, we've added a few weapons, which, uh, you know, we'll see once we get them out on the field, how it all, how it all puts together. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for this year. I think this year you're going to see an upgrade from last year. I think we're going to score more points. And I, I honestly think our defense is going to be more aggressive. And I really think that, uh, you know, this league doesn't know much about us. And I think we're going to, you know, maybe take some people by surprise and, uh, Show them how we do Falcon football. Because most of the guys have to have a day job. How often do you have the whole team together to practice? Or do you have parts of the team practice one day, parts of the team another day? Because guys do have obligations. Yeah, and the majority of the guys all have full-time jobs. They work um, during the preseason, which is now our, our camp season while we're going through. We practice one day a week. We just do Saturdays. We do a four-hour practice. Um, you know, we, we try to break it down into, you know, the first hour, more conditioning, you know, a couple hours of play install and play rep. And then, you know, we let the guys go, go against each other and live action at the end of the practice. But, um, 
once the season starts, we break down to one, one day a week. You know, we kind of take a consensus of, you know, what day works out the best for everybody that we can get out of work and, you know, come to a practice at five, six o'clock and, uh, you know, get our work in for the following week. Um, that is the struggle with semi-pro because none of these guys are paid. So they need to still make a living, you know, still need to put food on their table while they're trying to, you know, extend their dreams. And sure. so, you know, we work the best we can, you know, there's some guys where it's just, Hey man, I work second shift. There's nothing I can do. Okay. Well, make sure you make every Saturday practice, make sure you make every zoom meeting, you know, every single hit the weight rooms, do, you know, a lot of it's on the guys themselves. So, you know, they'll group right. together. You have groups of six, seven guys. They, they hit the weight rooms together and, you know, it, other guys will hit and do field work on Mondays and stuff like that. But, you know, you can only do so much when all the guys are working. You know, you're right, coach, but you're basing your game plan and everything around the guys being in shape, being self-motivated during the time they can't make practice, sneaking to the gym, running during the week. Have you ever had players who've just come to you woefully out of shape and you've been really disappointed? You see them, they're no real shape to play football. And you were kind of counting on them. Yeah, it, it happens every year. You know, it happens every year. You get a guy who comes back and you're like, what happened? You know, you were in perfect football shape. What'd you do this offseason? And, you know, I'll be honest with you, the, the biggest culprit is having a kid. Oh, every, every every time, well, not every time, but the majority of the time when these guys have, have their first kid, they, uh, yeah. they they put on a few pounds. <laughs> and oh, then, sure. sure, no doubt. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm brutally honest with the guys. If they come back out of shape, I let them know, hey, you're a few steps behind, man. You, you need to get in the gym. You need to, you know, and the guys know that because at the end of the day, they're coming out here, putting their bodies on the line. They don't want to be out of shape and get hurt or, you know, not be able to perform. So a lot of these guys, they're in the gym, you know, three to five days a week. They're on the fields three or four days a week, you know, working, running routes or, you know, old linemen are doing strength training. And I mean, it, it's basically up to them. How bad do they want it? Cause it's going to show. And, you know, Hey, that might be the reason why you're three or four on the depth chart instead of one or two. I yeah. mean, it, it's it, it's all what you're going to get out what you want to put in. And mo majority of the guys do understand that. And like I said, you do get some guys come in off the offseason a little out of shape. And you just got to you know light the fire under them a little bit and kind of get them re-motivated re again to, to shed the pounds. You know, and that's, that's typically happens here and there. You usually get one or two a year where you got to get them back in shape. But that's why we like to start so early. You know, yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the teams are just doing interest meetings now. and We've been practicing for two, three months already. It's it's a lot of self-motivation, as you said, players getting together, working out. I I, I get that. Um, so let's talk about the new league you're going in. It's got to be exciting. I mean, you know, the Triborough League, uh, you know, we followed that somewhat. Um, like you said, there's a lot of a lot of travel. Some people make it late and, and you can't go into the game full strength. But it's got to be really excited for the guys to go out there in this new league and travel around and, and play people they've never played before at all. That's got to be exciting. And and the, the ECFL part of it, I mean, you know the ECFL is a pretty well-organized league. They got they they got all everything together over there. It's really run well. Um, are you guys going to still be in that bottom class? You know, they have different classes to so everybody that hasn't you know, tuned in and watched um, semi-pro football and, and, and Matt on with us, they have different divisions where you have the younger teams that just came in, stay in a lower division. And then they, as they get experience and they, uh, they play in their alarm, they move up in divisions. Are you guys moving up there or, or are you still uh, about the same class? Go ahead. Right, as of right now, no decisions have been made on the, 
on the league um, where where teams are going to fall, what divisions. Um, I believe, and don't quote me on the exact date, but I believe early February, maybe February 5th or something, they have the league meeting with all the owners and the, um, the, the chairmen of the board and, you know, basically everybody from the league. And they'll, they'll go through and that, that's where they're pretty much, you know, kind of, kind of figure out their their rough draft of where they think everybody's going to fall in the divisions and, you know, how many teams are going to be allowed in this year, how many, you know, that is where they kind of wrap up everything from last year and get their plan for this year. Um, as of right now, we're just, uh, like, like I said, there, there's Tar Heels, the summer season, we're still in off season right now mode. Um, the majority of, like I said, the majority, we get the advantage that the majority of our guys are active and playing in spring ball. So, I mean, not just with the Falcons, I mean, there's players that play for the New York Patriots. There's players that play, you know, so there's a lot of, there's becoming a lot of crossover of the players playing on you know, both, both seasons. So they're coming into the summer in shape, ready to go. So um, basically we're just waiting on the league to find out where everything's fallen. There's a couple new teams coming in. I mean, we, we know you guys were covering the Northmen as they were building up last year. So we know that's a new team coming in. Right. So all these teams got to kind of find their place. You know, the league's going to make their decisions. Um, Typically, it's usually up to the owners themselves and the league to, you know, kind of come to an agreement where these teams deserve to be and where they should be to make the most competitive football. And um, that, that's we'll, we'll go from there. Wherever the league wants to put us, we'll go from there. You know, I, I, I think the, the Tar Heels last year could have played double A ball. I, you know, I, I don't think it would have, you know, made much of a difference. I mean, we played one double A team. It was one of the weaker double A teams, but we did play a double A team and beat them pretty well. So to, to me, I felt that, uh, you know, wherever we get put, we're, we're going to come and do our thing. Like we do, we're going to come to compete. Um, we've cleaned a few things up, you know, and, and we, we just going to move forward. Like I said, we, we came up so short last year and the ECFL is still, still kind of bitter to talk about it, but you know, it's, it, it, it's redemption, you know, the, the guy's got to come back and work hard. That's what it is, you know? And right now, the majority of those same core guys are focused on spring and focused on playing football right now. So they're already already getting in shape, already getting ready to go. Let me ask you with the league, is there a sponsor that gives the championship team any memento? Like Super Bowl teams get rings. I mean, you obviously you're not going to get anything that fancy in the semi-pro league compared to the NFL. But is any memento a championship team is given to your knowledge? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when you – it depends on the league. Um, certain leagues provide the rings. Um, there are rings. So that certain teams – certain leagues will pay for the pay for the rings. Um, other other teams, leagues that don't provide it, what the teams do is they go out and, you know, they'll go out and find sponsors for, you know, for the championship run. You know, it's very easy to find sponsors when you're in a championship run. You know, when you're going for the championship, you know, people put their name on your on your thing to get a couple bucks and get some uh, get some exposure. So, you know, the rings aren't that expensive. You know, it's not you know, like you said, it's not NFL. We're not, we're not paying forty thousand dollars for a ring. You know, but it, the, the guys get a ring. They do get a momentum for it if they win a championship. And you know, the, the rings have gotten more and more extravagant as the years have gone on. Uh, you know, they're not. They're not your plain looking class rings no more. I mean, so, some of these rings, they look like NFL rings almost. And um, yeah, we, we go from there. There's other leagues that also will provide, um, you know, free dues for the team the next year, the buy into the league. If they win this, win the league, they don't have to pay their league fees the next year. Or 
certain leagues will say, okay, if you win the league, we give you two free uniforms from this distributor for next year. So there are incentives. Um, There's other leagues that I know give cash, uh, you know, give cash directly to the team. You win, this is your payout. Um, But every league kind of handles it differently, but it all seems to always work out, you know, depending on the league. Cause you know what you're getting into, you know, if you're playing for a $5,000 cash or if you're playing for free dues and new uniforms, or if you're playing for rings, you know what you're playing for. And um, every organization I'm a part of, whether the league supplies the ring or not, we always have in the budget that if we win, we will provide rings for the guys because, you know, you don't want the guys to have to pay for their own ring after they earned it. That's the truth. So so one other one other thing I want to go over with you, Mike, before we let you go. Um, do you – are you going to have some kind of live feed? Because, you know, last year I really wanted to get the Tar Heels on uh, a lot. Uh, we did do a little bit with the Falcons uh, and uh, the Mustangs. I uh, got helped out with, and, you know, we love to carry you, have live coverage. Uh, you know, we're on the Roku channel now. I got Eastern uh, Sports Network kind of partnered up with us a little bit. They're going to be providing um, some live videos from everything, really. So I would love to get you guys. I'll be talking to Northman uh, this year, too, trying to get some kind of live feed from them, too, so that we get live football on there. Because I'll tell you, folks, you know, it's not NFL. But these guys go out there and they play a heck of a game. They got a lot of talent, as 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 coaches said, and uh, some big hits, um, great quarterback, and some unbelievable runs. I mean, it's very, very uh, good football. So you know, we're going to want to get that more this year, Coach. I hope we can do that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, like I said, with with the Tar Heel season, it was a little a uh, little scrambled. Um, there was a lot of time movements on games, you know, game was going to be at five, then it's at seven, going to be at three. Gonna be, so it was a little tough to get everything together. Um, once our schedule comes out, we will, we will have our, our live streamers booked and all of that. And we'll, uh, we'll definitely get you that link so you can, uh, so you can uh, show us some love. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I love, I love, I love following uh, semi-pro, especially, especially your two teams and, and we'll see how the Northmen do this year. I'm rooting for them to have a good year this year. So, uh, Coach, thank you for coming in. We'll have you on again as as it unfolds in the season. Maybe get some interviews again this year. Maybe I'll be able to get out there and see you again this year. I hope so. And, and watch you guys live because it was a lot of fun last year. And uh, we really enjoy having you on Northeast Streaming Sports and the Mac and Jack Sports Show. Thank you for coming in, Coach. Hope to uh, Good luck, man. Good luck getting this team together. Thank you. You guys both have a great day. Thanks, you're welcome. Coach. Take care, buddy. So there you go, Coach Matt Tomczewski. Not only coaches uh, the Falcons in the spring, but the Tar Heels in the summer as he goes all year. And he's got it in his blood, Jack. He loves the Mac, loves- Mac, I didn't want to cut in because you accused me of cutting him while you were talking to Coach Matt. I thought you might ask him as he throwing his hat in for the head coaching position at the New York Giants. Uh- yeah, <laughs> that would have been a great question. I might, you know, I am friends with John Mara uh, indirectly. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll put in that suggestion. I don't know. I don't know, Jack. Real quick, I mean, we're gonna go to. Let's go to the. Let's before we go to break. Your idea for the Giants' head coaching position. Let's not talk GM because I don't know about the GM, but for the Giants' head coach position, my opinion. Jack, is it's got to be somebody. I don't want to hear no offensive defense corners. There's been a lot of head coaches laid off. You got Flores from Miami. 
You got Zimmer from Minnesota. Both head coaches. Both know how to run a team. Both could bring stability to the Giants right away. Zimmer, coach under Parcells. He coached under Jimmy Johnson. He's been to postseason. Flores has done a tremendous job with Miami, I think, in two years. Those will be my two picks. What do you think? Uh, yeah, those are good picks, but sometimes you have to look at a reason why people are let go. Now, I'm, I've always been very high on Brian Flores. I've always felt he's a great young coach. But one of the reasons the owner of the Dolphins, Stephen Ross, let him go is because of the big turnover. He kept firing his coordinators, and there wasn't stability. And if a head coach is going to keep getting rid of coordinators, keep going through them, why should we have sympathy for him if he's then let go? There's a reason. Owners want stability. But I think a big part of this hiring process, and maybe wrongly so, is they maybe put too much interview, too much emphasis on how impressive a candidate is during the interview process. He comes across very well during the interview, so they hire him because they're impressed with him and it turns out to be a delusion. I kind of like more looking at the guy's track record. What's he done? Now, Doug Peterson is a possible candidate for some teams. He won a Super Bowl with the Eagles, Mac. And some people said, oh, it really wasn't Doug Peterson. His, it was his offensive coordinator, Frank Reich. That's why Carson Wentz played so well with the Eagles. Well, Frank Reich had Carson Wentz this year, and it was a mixed bag. Yeah. Carson Wentz finished the second half of the season very poorly. He was good the first half, not good the second half, and the Colts missed the playoffs. So maybe Doug Peterson had a lot to do with the success after all. You know, I mean, we don't know. There are good candidates out there. There's Mike Zimmer. Bill Parcells put the Vikings down for letting go of Mike Zimmer. But, you know, some of these former head coaches, they tend to be overly protective of guys who are on their staff. And Bill Parcells, to his credit, more so than any other head coach I've ever seen, with the possible exception of Jim Lee Howe back in the 1950s, who had Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry as his coordinators. You don't get better than that, Mac. No. That's the all-time best. But Bill Parcells had great coordinators. It's legendary. Bill Belichick, Tom Coughlin, Sean Payton. So Mike Zimmer was one of his guys. But sometimes, just because a guy's a great head coach, like, like Bill Belichick, arguably, arguably only the best NFL head coach of all time, it doesn't mean his coordinators are going to be successful. His, his assistant coaches have been an absolute flop on the NFL level. The latest has been Joe Judge. That's true. It's true. And, you know, I, I, think, I think to me, and that's why I will argue anybody that – Bill Parcells may be the greatest head coach ever because not only he put coach players, but he coached coaches and he is one of the most, I mean, you could even put him in with Howell because Howell really didn't run that team. Howell just let, let Landry and Lombardi run it. I read a lot of stories, you know, being you know, giant fans about what Howell Jim really Lee did. Howell, yeah, who was a coach Parcells, of the Giants at the time. Yeah. Parcells ran that team. But he always said, my job is not just to coach the players, it's to coach the coaches. And, man, did he do that. And to me, Zimmer, if you get a team in uh, four postseason uh, playoff games in nine years, you're doing pretty well. And not that he's, you know, not that he's Bill Belichick, 
but the man can coach. And he will put a defense there and he'll put a running game in there. That's for sure. If, 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 if anything else, the Giants will have a good defense and a good running game because everywhere in Minnesota had that too. So I'm kind of hoping for Zimmer, but we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what happens with that whole thing. Well, back to Brian Flores quickly with Miami. He <clears throat> reportedly didn't get along with the GM there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't get along with the GM and you and you have a big turnover in your coaching staff and you're letting people go whenever things aren't quite going the way you want it to. It's not a comfortable situation. Listen, I remember the line, the owners of the Golden State Warriors, they let Mark Jackson go. And a lot of people felt, and rightfully so, Mark Jackson had a role in the Golden State Warriors' success. They didn't win the championship under him but he did take them to the next level. He put them in position to win the championships and then he was let go. But one of the owners of the Golden State Warriors said, when no one in the building likes you at all, when you're, you know, then you got a problem. And no one liked Mark Jackson, maybe outside of the players. And if you're creating a terrible culture within the organization, that's a reason sometimes to just move on from a guy. No, no coach is bigger than the organization. No player is bigger than the team. If you want to take that attitude, with yeah. the possible exception of Aaron Rodgers, of course, Mac. Or, or Bill Belichick or Vince Lombardi. They may have been a little bit bigger than the organization. But uh, I understand exactly what you're saying, Jack. Yeah. Folks, we're going to get out of here for a few minutes. On the other side, we're scheduled to have Santos Perez. Uh, Miami Herald writer. He's been all wrote in a bunch of magazines. He's a boxing writer, Mudruck, and and others. And also, we'll we'll have scheduled. We have scheduled up the IBO uh, president Ed Levine will be joining us about that boxing sanctioning. You know the body of that boxing sanction. Right. sanction. Um, anyway. Perez is mostly Miami Herald. You know, but he has, well, he has, written, he has written for other. He has written for other publications. But right, exactly. You know, yeah. Right. It's, is his main thing, and it's going to be a lot of boxing next uh, next part, guys. So if you love boxing, you're going to love the second half of the show as we have two great guests coming up. So we'll be right back after these messages, folks. Stick around. You worked too hard, you ate too much, the cheesecake made you greedy. Let your aching head and stomach hear this message from old Speedy. Alka-Seltzer, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Those speedy bubbles relieve your upset stomach and headache fast. For acid indigestion alone, Alka-Seltzer gold. Oh, what a relief it is. What a relief. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. I am the top banana in the world today. Now you know the best. 
bananas in the land. So don't say if with an inferior brand. When is it, Gigi? It's a very good day to buy bananas. Hi, Grandma. What's for dinner? Hey, honey, I'm making stew tonight. McDonald's is our kind of place. It's such a happy place. F, 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 happy place. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma? This is hard. She's so young. But I know I need to talk to her about it now before someone tries to give her alcohol. If anyone ever does offer you a drink, I want you to say no. I have too much respect for my family, and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. Really? I promise, Grandma. I love you, too. Okay, how about tasting the stew and telling me what you think? Mm. Some children may try alcohol as young as nine years old. It's not too early to talk about drinking. For tips on how to begin the conversation, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. When the job is done, this guy will be ready to dig into something mighty good to eat. How do you handle a hungry man, the manhandlers? One of the manhandlers is Campbell's Vegetable Beef. Gets a man-sized supper off to a good hot start. Mmm, good. The manhandlers. If you talk and they will hear you. Every single time. Oh, we get killed. Yeah, well, Kyle's not here. How come? Kicked off the team. Didn't Tim tell you? Kyle's mother kids got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Come on, it's the first offense, right? That we know of. But why should that matter? He knew not to drink. I've made it clear to Matt, that's what we expect from him. What have you said to Tim? Um, nothing really. You know, a lot of kids try at this age, so... I... Yeah, well, a lot of kids don't try it, too. I'm not saying that Matt's going to be this perfect kid, but if I don't tell him what we expect and why he shouldn't drink, how's he going to know? You think kids that age really listen? <laughs> they never admit it, Bill, but they hear more than you think. Talk. They hear you. For more information about talking with kids about underage drinking, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning. You're listening to the Mac and Jack Sports Show on Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac and Jack Sports Show. We're on live Thursday through Sunday, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Uh, I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, Jack Hirsch. And, Jack, um, you know, I, again, you know, with with um, with the semi-pro football league, folks, uh, if you got a shout-out, there was a semi-pro football team in, in your area, go down and check them out. It's great football. They'll be playing when the NFL ain't playing. So if you love football, you get to see some uh, great game by young men who are trying to get into college scholarships into college because they can't get into it otherwise. Uh, they end up going into playing arena football. 
They get tryouts at the XFL, USFL, Canadian Football League, and some even get tryouts with the NFL. So you might see a future star uh, at the semi-pro level uh, before they get up to the big levels of professional football and uh, the NCC, NCAA football leagues. So we're due to have uh, Carlos, I mean, Santos Perez in. Uh, so hopefully he makes it in. But until he comes in, Jack, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a couple games that to me were unbelievable uh, from the weekend of, uh, you know, the, the seeding and, and two teams trying to get, three teams really trying to get in the playoffs. You had you had the uh, Oakland Raiders. I still call them Oakland, even though they're Las Vegas, uh, versus the uh, San Diego Chargers, who are now the Los Angeles Chargers. So little old school AFC teams come up matching against each other. And what a game it was, Jack. It, it went down to the wire, uh, overtime, uh, both teams uh, scrapping. And and to me, the Raiders showed a lot of heart, a lot of mental toughness uh, winning that game. I got to tell you a funny story, Mac. Uh, while it was going on, I had an obligation to be in Orlando. And I was at the Orlando Magic Washington Wizards NBA game on NFL Sunday, believe it or not, I had that long-term obligation. A buddy of mine was hosting an event there. And his friend was talking about the possibilities before the game. Well, if the Raiders play a tie with the Chargers, and I told him in a polite way, stop the nonsense. I don't want to hear this nonsense. There's less than a 1% chance of it being a tie. It's not even worth a discussion. I mean, don't get caught up in this nonsensical talk about a tie. And it came down to the last play of the game. I sent an apology the next day because it nearly wound up being a tie. Brandon Staley, the Raider, I mean, the Charger coach came under a lot of criticism, and I feel unfairly so, <laughs> for calling a timeout late in the game because they felt he shouldn't have stopped the clock because the Raiders may have played for a tie. I disagree. When he called the timeout, the Raiders were in position to attempt a 56-yard field goal, and they still would have been able to run a couple of handoffs, meaning they would have gotten closer. They would have gotten around the 50-yard line, and if it's the last play of the game, the Raiders easily could have called timeout with a couple of seconds and went for the winning kick. Why not? They're not going to take a knee if they could you know, win it with a field goal at the end in all probability. So Brandon Staley wanted to keep things alive for the Chargers, figuring if they could stop the Raiders, at least they get the ball back, and then they have their destiny in their own hands, okay? Even if they make a field goal, you know, they still have a little shot, a little hope. So I can understand the decision he made. Uh, the criticism he came under was a little unfair, but what would it have meant for the league, Mac, if both teams were taking knees and they had this gentleman's agreement, a tie puts them both in the playoffs? I think that would have been bad for the game if they didn't try to win at all. But the public is fickle. If you don't take a knee and you try to win and it backfires and you don't go to the playoffs, I mean, everyone puts you down for that. Yeah. So whatever you do, it's a no-win situation at the end, you know, as far as the strategy goes. Well, well, two things on that game. One, um, again, I think the Chargers on paper have maybe more talent than the Raiders. I think the Raiders are just 
uh, are playing out of their minds right now. I don't know how far they'll go. But uh, with Derek Carr and a defense and a running game, they got a shot. But the other thing I want to talk to you about, and I talked to um, Larry Brown, that Super Bowl MVP on the J&B uh, Talking Shop show last night. That pass interference uh, penalty has got to go, Jack. Because when Carr dropped back, he was like at his 40-yard line. He threw the ball into the end zone. We don't know whether the receiver could have caught it or not because it was, I'd say, maybe 10 yards away from him. And he runs into the defensive back, and now you're first and go on the on the on on the on the Chargers goal line. That penalty's got to change. I don't care if they split the difference. I know the old pen, the penalty was 15 yards, and the defensive backs would grab him if they had a chance if they were blowing by him, and they didn't want them doing that anymore because you know it it it, it slowed down the game. But if you're going to give a if you're going to give the team first and goal when it's third and fifteen and they throw the ball in the end zone and now you're first and goal you just changed the whole game, Jack. I hate that penalty. They got to change it. No, no, Matt, Mac. Normally they don't call that. You know, if they see the receiver has no chance of catching the ball, that it's very rare that they're going to call it. It was just it a happens. bad call in that situation. They thought he had a slim chance of catching yeah. the ball, so they made the call. Realistically, the ball wasn't going to get caught under any circumstances, but they thought it wasn't an impossibility for him to get to the ball if he wasn't interfered with, so they made the call. It was a little harsh, I admit. They, 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 they got to change that penalty, Jack. If you're, if you're third and 15 and you throw the ball uh, uh, 30 yards, you know, you just gained 15 yards. They've got to, they've either got to split the difference, either go to half the, you know, if it's a big play like that, half the yardage, or they go back to the 15 yard rule. The defensive backs have hard enough time covering these guys running all over the field where you're going to get called uh, on a 40, 60 yard penalty. That's ridiculous. There's no penalty in the NFL like that. They've got to change that. And the owner's got to get together and change that. Otherwise, you know, it's going to happen. It happens. It's rare. You're right. It doesn't happen all the time. But it does happen, and now you're changing the whole complexion of the game, and that's just wrong. A, a, a flag should not change the whole complexion of the game. And Well, you play. know what gets me? You know what bothers me, Mac? Sometimes a flag comes in late, and they allow the players – the players could sell it to the ref. The yeah. play will be over for like a second or two, and the player's going to turn to the ref. He's going to complain – the sideline's going to complain. The fans are going to boo. And then the ref throws yeah. a flag. Yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. The refs have to be decisive. If you're not throwing a flag in the first second, okay, after it happened, the flag shouldn't come out after. It's like the it's referee. It's like they have to absorb what happened and yeah. think, well, should I throw a flag? Should I not throw a flag? And it gets to be, you know, a problem. But listen, we had that major controversial call like three years ago or so with the Rams and the Saints in the NFC Championship game. Like, like, when the, like, right, when the defender was, uh, the receiver was hit way too early, a flag wasn't shown. You got to allow certain reviews on that too, to a point. That's why I'm all for like extending mm -hmm. the timeouts, six timeouts a game, let's say. You could use them all together. And you can, any time you want to question the call, you can. If you're wrong, you lose a timeout, case closed. 
but yeah. they wait till within the last two minutes for that. That's well, I've, I've seen when refs make a bad call. They know they made a bad call, and they'll just call holding on the offense or defense the next play and try to even it up. I've seen them do that too. Yeah, oh, yeah, all the time. They even yeah. it out all the time. You're right. Yeah, so so uh, bad call, but great game. Great game. I give the Raiders a lot of credit and uh, for winning that game, uh, a game that they were underdogs. And the sex, second game I want to talk about is the 49ers and the Rams. Now, the Rams in the first half looked like they were going to run away with the game. And the 49ers came out in the second half like wild dogs. I mean, they were so physical with the Rams. The Rams looked soft. The receivers were running over defensive backs. They took three, four guys to bring down the receivers, never mind the running backs. The defense was all over Stafford. Stafford kind of choked a little bit at the end uh, with all that pressure. I don't know about the Rams, man. You know, I picked the 49ers to go to Super Bowl. I'm feeling pretty good right now. Uh, with their next matchup against the Cowboys. If the if the 49ers play like that all year, they got a shot, Jack. And I don't know if Dallas can handle that physicality of the, of the 49ers if they play that way. Jim Jeffcoat said something very, very revealing on the last show that he feels the Rams are basically like an all-star team. And those all-star teams don't win. You could put together the best possible team, the most talent. But if they don't have the chemistry as a team, as talented as they are, they're not going to win. Okay. And you right. kind of wonder with the Rams, you know, where it's at. But you're right about the 49ers. They could be a real sleeper. Now that they're in the playoffs, they are very dangerous. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. And guess what, folks? We do have Santos, Santos Perez backstage underneath right now. We're going to bring him up. And talk a little bit of boxing with him, one of my favorite sports. So let's bring Santos in. How you doing today, Santos? Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Santos. Doing, doing great, Santos. Glad you could make it uh, in. Uh, we, as as I was saying before you come up, of course, Jack. You know, Jack's uh, you know Hall of Fame boxing writer here in New York. Um, me, I've been following boxing almost all my life, and we love talking boxing on this show. You being from, you know, a, a great writer for the Miami Herald and the Florida Boxing Hall of Fame. I mean, you've, your, your articles reach out to a lot of different magazines. And what I, I ask everybody this kind of question, uh, Santos, what attracted you to, to, to boxing and writing about boxing rather than other sports? It has to be my dad. Um, being born in Cuba, growing up uh, in, in, in Miami. Uh, my dad was a big boxing fan, and uh, also he devoured the newspaper every day. So that combination, I guess. And uh, early on, he would tell me uh, stories about Dempsey, uh, Chocolate, back, you know, obviously the first Cuban champion, uh, Kid Chocolate. And that would, uh, that's one of the reasons I, I gradually started uh, following it little by little, you know, First couple of years here in the States in the late 1960s, uh, we gathered around the, the house for a big fight in, 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 you know, for us, which was uh, Louis Rodriguez going up to middleweight and challenging Nino Benvenuti for the middleweight title. And it, it's sort of like a, you know, when you have these Super Bowl parties where everybody gets together at a house and that's how it, that's how it was. I would think nine or 10 years old at the time. And, and, he, he was so close. He was dominating that fight. And gosh, Nino Benvenuti cl clocks him late in the fight and knocks him out. And that was 
So deflating. 11th round. Right, right. Uh, Benvenuti was cut pretty badly on the bridge of his nose. Rodriguez had pulled ahead on points. Right. And he was on his way to winning the world middleweight title. And Benvenuti caught him the one big punch and knocked him out. And later, you know, Rodriguez said it was a lucky punch. But his trainer, Angelo Dundee, said, no, it was a champion's punch. (laughs) But Rodriguez did hold a world welterweight title. He did. He He was world champion for a little while. A great, great fighter. Never given his due, unfortunately. And it, it's sad. It's sad because you know he beat he, he beat Emil Griffith, and uh, in fact that na- that night in 1960, I believe it's 1963 at Dodger Stadium, Sugar Ramos also won a featherweight title. But what's so interesting, you know, eventually I got involved in journalism, sports writing, and one of the first stories that I wrote uh, for the then Miami News, uh, which no, the afternoon paper we no longer have here, uh, was on Louis Rodriguez. He was training fighters in Miami, uh, amateur fighters. And, uh, and we talked about that, that, that night when he fought Benvenuti. Uh, so that, that, that started it off. I mean, basically combination, my dad following the sport and, uh, I eventually developed an interest in sports writing. And, and that's one of the f- sports that I always, whenever at the, at the newspaper, uh, I told him, look, if you need, not everybody was interested in covering boxing even then uh and i told him no i I love boxing and i would definitely if you need me to cover a fight or write a feature about a a fighter or a trainer or anyone involved in the sport i would i I was for it immediately so this was before your time santos boxing in florida the fifth street gym in miami cassius clay you know on the way up it was a hotbed of boxing all the great fighters louis rodriguez jimmy ellis and on and on. What's the state of boxing in Florida now compared to back in the day? It's been busy. Uh, obvious certain factors led to the uh, uh, the busy year in 21. Believe it or not, we had 25 shows in Miami-Dade and Broward County last year. Uh, there are a lot of trainers. There are a lot of, uh, uh, not as many gyms. The, the gyms that we, you mentioned, Jack, the Fifth Street Gym, uh, those gyms and what the what is sad though is, is the amateur. The amateur scene is not as uh, not as productive as it used to be. Obviously, kids are gravitating to other sports, and we used to have a weekly show in Coconut Grove, which is a section of Miami. Uh, that was a hotbed for for amateur fights. The PALs were always very involved. Uh, not as much anymore. Uh, professional. Uh, as far as professional boxing is concerned, it's pretty healthy. You know, we have a lot of events, uh, but what concerns me is the amateurs. The the amateurs is not as uh, vibrant as it once once was, and that concerns me. Well, well, Carlos, you know, boxing's always been big when I was since I've been growing up till today in the, in the Hispanic community. I mean, you know, Cuba and South America, um, even in Europe and Spain, and that it's always been it's always been one of the major. That and baseball, sort of like old school, you know, the United States. It was boxing and baseball way back when. Right. And of course, of course, boxing has fell off a little bit in the United States for a lot of reasons, right? There's so many belts, there's so many sanctioning bodies. We really don't know who the champions and the contenders are like we used to. Uh, but you know, still down in South America, that over in England, up in Canada, it's huge still. They sell out fights all the time. Um what do you think happened? I mean, there's a couple of reasons I named. I know 
But what do you think really happened here besides COVID, which kind of slowed things down, uh, that really took boxing uh, back a few steps where it was always, you knew who the heavyweight champion was. You knew who the number one contender was. Um, what do you think really happened to boxing? You, you, you mentioned it, uh, the proliferation of belts. Uh, and not only belts, but divisions. We grew up when there were only eight divisions. And there goes the heavyweight champion of the world. Everybody knew who that was. Um, now it's just, just so many of them. Uh, in an interesting anecdote, a few years ago, I was uh, uh, allowed to uh, interview Vladimir Klitschko in, here in Hollywood, uh, which is uh, near Miami. And we met at a restaurant for lunch and we talked, you know, it was a you know, friendly conversation. It was an interview, but also a conversation. And I looked around, this is the heavyweight champion of the world. Not one person approached him. Hey, can I have your autograph? Can I take a picture? The only person I think that uh, actually approached him was a, a, a bus server who was, I think, from Ukraine. So obviously he recognized him. But that kind of told me, wow, this is not good. I mean, this is the heavyweight champion of the world. And I think he, he was not he was a, a, not undisputed. He had held most of the belt. That's just the problem. There's just so many champions and... Uh, uh, that's one thing that the UFC has done very well. They know how to market it. And we don't have that marketing prowess in, in, in boxing. Right now. Yeah, you have your attractions like Canelo, you know, Tyson Fury right now. But uh, before when it was a, a big time fight, and this is one thing that I've continually uh, bring up in, in, in many of my stories is there's that, uh, that problem that the best are not fighting the best in their prime. You know, we're not seeing Hearns and 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 uh, and uh, and Leonard in their prime. We're not seeing Ali Frazier the first fight. Uh, look how long it took for Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather to fight. No. Look how long you know the Golovkin the Golovkin Alvarez fight should have happened two or three years before, but no, it happened when it was convenient for for Alvarez to step in the ring against Golovkin. Now we're seeing with Crawford and and, and Errol Spence. We just that's that's what turns people off. The best are not fighting the best when they're supposed to. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and the problem, a lot of problems with the sanction embodies so many anyway. If you hold the belts, as Jack has said numerous times, if you don't fight who they have mandatory, they're going to strip you the belt anyway. Right. So it's 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 just it's it's a, a continuous cycle when it comes to trying to you know to fight the best ones, the number one contenders. A lot of it's the big fights, right? They they want to fight Canelo. It doesn't matter who the next contender is, which right. I understand. And it, it's happened in the past, but they were fighting so much more back then. You were going to see the contenders fight the champion a lot right. sooner than they do now without it working its way through courts and all that nonsense. So, yeah, um, no, we, we, there's a, there's a big problem. You know, the, there's also the pro promotional connections, you know, if uh, for, for a promoter who basically has most of his fights on one specific TV network and another promoter, has his fights on another on a competing TV network, that creates another problem. And uh, it was able to be ironed out when uh, when Pacquiao and, uh, and and Mayweather fought. And I think recently when Fury and Wilder had their fights, uh, it was carried through multiple networks. But uh, that that's also a, a big hurdle, getting the, the fights that people want to watch when they're supposed to be fighting. Santos, yesterday it came over the news, Terrence Crawford is suing Bob Arum for racial bias, you know, that he favors uh, 
the white and Latino fight as the reason why he wasn't getting the lucrative opportunities. What's your take on Terrence Crawford's uh, lawsuit? Uh, I think the the, the the tension had built there for for a long time. I don't I don't know if it's gonna go far, but uh, and and for a fighter who wants to market himself, uh, and unfortunately he hasn't had that 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 crossover appeal, and it's unfortunate because he is, I in my opinion, I think he's the best fighter in the world, with all due respect to Canelo. But uh, what Crawford has accomplished, I don't think it's gonna go far, Jack. Um, it, it this is an opportunity for him to. To, to keep be more mainstream and an issue like this is not going to help him. Yeah, I agree. I hope, you know, you're not going to assign somebody that might sue you, right? So that's kind of right. shooting yourself in the foot. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people watch the YouTube fights, right? The fighters, they're, they're not really fighters. They're the showmen. They come out and they set up fights with has-beens in different sports, whether it's UFC or football or, or whatever. They're not really fighting fighters. It does bring the young people to boxing, but it's like a mockery of boxing, Santos. It's not real boxing. I hope it carries over into the other fights. I think the boxing uh, uh, the boxing commissions are foolish not to take um, and, and try to work with, not work with them as being fighters here, but as far as the promotional side and maybe getting their fights on TV like they do, you know, work with them in that aspect not with Paul and all those other idiots that think that, you know, that are doing what they do over there, but it is bringing young people in. And so I don't like it. I don't like the fights, but the promotion is kind of smart. And maybe if boxing got a commissioner, a head guy, maybe it would be better. I, in fact, I know it would be better because you wouldn't have these random things all over the place. But what do you think about the YouTube uh, aspect of it? Not the fights ex exactly, because I think it's I think it's garbage, but the way they promote it, San, uh, Santos. No, they, they 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 do a great job in marketing it. They 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 you know when Mayweather came out of retirement to fight uh, one of the Paul brothers, uh, it, it did good numbers. And uh, this last week, Jake Paul uh, fought in Tampa about a month ago. Um, I'm not a fan of it. Obviously, the, the, the deserving fighters like Crawford and. Uh, other other top 10 fighters don't get this attention. Uh, it's kind of unfortunate. Uh, I agree with you, but will it be part? Look, the, the, the freak show atmosphere has always been part of boxing. We had Butterbean fighting in many of the pay-per-views for, for, for years, and that tapped in, but he was not the main star. But he became part of the, uh, of the promotion. Uh, it might have started out at a... At, uh, she might have been seen as a as a circus act, but she turned out to be a great fighter. Christy Martin, when she fought in in Don King's pay per views, you know, she might have been a novelty attraction early on. But Christy Martin, lo and behold, proved that she was an excellent uh, a fighter. I mean, she was not only was she a, an attraction, but she was also an excellent fighter. But you're right. I mean, the YouTube fighters uh, they tactically select who they're going to fight. Either it's an, uh, a forty something MMA fighter who is long in the tooth and really is not the, at his peak athletic uh, level. Um, or a 58-year-old Evander Holyfield. That was really embarrassing when he uh, when he, when he participated down here in an exhibition months ago. I, I, they're, they're, they're looking at what Roy Jones and Mike Tyson did in their, their pay-per-view. And a lot of these old fighters are talking about, no, I want to come back. I want to fight. Because they see what, what Tyson and Roy Jones did. Um, 
it could be part of a promotion for them to be the headliners. That really uh, gives you a, an example why boxing is such a sad state right now because they're, the marketable stars are not there. And uh, you need a Jake Paul to be your dance partner to really cross the, the threshold and become a, a pay-per-view attraction yourself. And that, that that's a problem that uh, a Terrence Crawford in, is having right now. Um, er, er, Errol Spence, you know, he had, I think his, if I'm not mistaken, his first notable pay-per-view event was against Mikey Garcia. Well, Errol Spence is, is an established solid welterweight. Mikey Garcia had to go up two weight divisions. But Mikey Garcia was viewed as the, the pay-per-view attraction. Why? Because he had already built himself quite a following in, in the lighter weights. And uh, but that that you need you need that dance partner and unfortunately uh, boxing does not have enough marketable stars right now uh, for solid pay per view numbers so that's why you see the 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 YouTube personalities with their platforms one in, one interesting uh, f fighter who has tapped into that uh, YouTube medium and has a lot of followers and is actually an established fighter and a very good fighter is Ryan Garcia. He's the type of fighter that he knows how to market himself. He already has the YouTube following. That's a type of fighter that could, and talented enough that could, you know, cross into that pay-per-view uh, threshold. Unfortunately, he's had emotional issues, which has him out of the ring. Santos, which of these two fights does better business? $80, let's say the price tag is. A Fury-Yusik fight to unify the heavyweight title so we know beyond a shadow of a doubt who's heavyweight champion or a Tyson-Holofield fight. Which was going to make more Tyson-Holofield, 10 rounds, it's scheduled for 10, whatever. And they, and they market both fights as well as they can. Which does better business, in your opinion? Not which we would get, obviously... We're going with Yusick and Fury. That's the fight we want to see. But which right. has higher numbers, in your opinion? Well, obviously, uh, Tyson and Holyfield will do the better. That, and that's Even a sad... at this stage, that's the insanity that's going on. Right. So we put down the Jake Paul thing. But even though Tyson and Holyfield were great fighters back in the day, they're long past it. And just the thought that right. the people would tune into it was right. astonishing. Yeah, they'll, they'll tune in to, 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 to see the spectacle. Yeah, exactly. You know, remember uh, the last time they were in the ring together, Tyson did all of yeah, zero. Yeah. So it's like, a, it's, so it's a continuation of, 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 a, of a show here. So, yeah. yeah, but you're right. I mean, Fury and Music were huge. They'll do huge numbers in the UK. If they do that at Wembley, that'll be a, a, a packed a stadium. Uh, but obviously, Holyfield and Tyson are the bigger names just the but the nature of the boxing business has changed because the newspaper business has changed there was a time where people couldn't wait to get the newspaper and read their favorite beat writer santos perez of the miami herald but now you have so much different news all over the place all over the internet some of it good some not so good right. anyone can write and get on the internet these days so the quality I don't want to say it's gone down, but things aren't like they used to be, where we love getting the newspaper and seeing what our beat writer had to say. Uh, 
what's your take on all that? It, 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 it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, uh, we used to have a weekly boxing column. Then it was reduced to every two weeks, and now it's sporadic. I mean, yeah, I, I would have to tell them, uh, look, this is an interesting uh, story idea. Maybe we should uh, make it into a column or make it into a, a feature. But uh, yeah, it, it, to get the ears, it's all about the clicks. The newspaper looks up what, what's getting more, more traffic. Down here, it's probably the Dolphins, University of Miami football, and then the Miami Heat. After that, it's it's a crapshoot. You know, if it's a uh, if it's a Floyd Mayweather story, yeah, it'll probably get some some attention. Uh, Manny Pacquiao, believe it or not, when we we used to have a a daily traffic uh monitor the most read stories in the paper that day not just sports whenever anything was written about manny pacquiao in his prime it was the most read story in our paper why because it was just not read in miami in the greater miami area but all over the world <laughs> i mean yeah. it was yeah. uh, this is the early days of obviously uh, online uh, newspapers but now uh, it, it, it just doesn't get the attention it doesn't get the attention we no i don't think any newspapers have a, a have a boxing uh, beat writer anymore as far as a weekly column is concerned i could be wrong maybe there's still some markets uh, out west and the northeast maybe they might still have some but uh, that's the that's the struggle that the boxing writer is dealing with i mean for them to uh, look uh, if the sports not, and you mentioned jack there are so many outlets that people who follow boxing might just go directly to those websites whether the quality of the work might not be the best but they might but it's still boxing related and they'll probably go to those sites first yeah i mean it, uh before we let you go we got ed levine backstage uh ibo uh president santos we're gonna have him up next like i said we have plenty of boxing this last this last last half hour give them give them your site so they can go over there and read some of your stuff I've, I've, I read one article quickly, uh, you know, with the Miami Herald, and I saw you in, in Mudruck and, and a couple other places, and I quickly skimmed through them. Very great writing on your part. And you. uh, tell, tell them where they could see you, find you, uh, and read some of your stories. Yeah, it'll be at uh, herald.com slash sports. Uh, the, the, the problem is uh, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on the MMA. So MMA and professional wrestling – so you have to probably uh, type in uh, in the search key boxing once you get to the website uh, or, or, or or click my name, you know, and, and you'll, you'll find the articles that way. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's not as we're not getting the the exposure that we were getting. But uh, you know, I'm fortunate that every now and then we, Jack and I met at the, the, the fights last week at the Hard Rock. It was an interesting event. I mean, uh interesting heavyweight title fight uh, not title fight but an elimination fight there with ortiz and martin um yeah. we uh, uh an event like that that yeah they were interested in, in in me covering it but it's not i used to cover every local show down here and that's not the case anymore yeah it's changed it's changed quite a bit for for the yeah. worse and hopefully hopefully they find a way to get it back again so. santos thank you for coming in great guest Great, great opinions on boxing, and uh, we'll try and get you back on soon. I'd love to hear someone when we get a big fight coming up. 
I'd love to get your take on it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep your number, and we got something big coming up. I want to Santos. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both. I appreciate. Have it. a good one, Santos. You too. Have a good one. So there you go, folks. Miami Herald's Santos Perez um, in the Florida Boxing Hall of Fame. Next up, folks, we got one of the commissioners of the sanctioning body at well, IBA. Pre president. 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 President oh, Chairman, you're demoting him, Mac. I mean, you're demoting Chairman, the guy. Chairman, head guy, he's the man that runs the thing over there, Jack. So let's bring on IBO President Ed Levine and have him up and talk a little bit about boxing, too. Here we go. Sorry, Ed, coming up now. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing fine. Nice to, I don't, I've never met Mac before, but nice to meet you. Nice uh, to meet hi, you. Ed. Jack, it's been a long time since I've seen you. Probably probably a decade or two. Probably have more hair on my head at that time. Well, you probably still do. You probably shave what's left. Well, I got, I got one of these tight knit haircuts uh, a little yes, while yes, ago. Very still tight. Very yes, it looks I'll very, take whatever grows back. <laughs> you look very good with it not on you. So it's good. Yeah, very distinguished. Yes, he does. Right. So, so Ed, let, let's talk. We, we just had Santos Perez on. Great writer for the Miami Herald about boxing. And of course, you know, I'm a I'm a boxing fan from way back. My first fight I ever saw was Ali Frazier won. And uh what a fight it was. And from then on I was hooked and followed, you know, all the great champions and 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 contenders of those days. And all the guests I have on, I know you're one of the sanctioned bodies also, uh, they talk about how boxing has kind of got confusing. There's so many belts. There's so many titles. There's so many different champions that it's hard to keep up with it like it used to be way back when. As you know, Ed, you knew who the champion was and the contenders were. And I know IBO is a sanctioned body, uh, um, and I'm not putting them down on the sanctioned bodies at all. I just wish they could get together more and give us more of the better uh, fights and maybe a, a, clearer, a clearer picture of who really is the champion and who the real contenders are. Okay, interestingly, um, I think it's ironic to some degree that your prior guest, Santos, who I've, I've met many, many times. He's, he lives in Miami. I live in Miami. Um, he's a very nice man, uh, just a very friendly guy, and knows boxing very well. Uh, I'm also in the Florida Boxing Hall of Fame. Right. Um, uh, I was in, I I've been introduced to Santos. I actually went to his induction into the Florida Boxing Hall of Fame. Um, and um, he is a, he writes for the Herald. I, I've been reading the Miami Herald for 45 years. He's never mentioned the IBO. Okay. Right. That's what we contend with. And that's what we contend with across the board. Um, particularly with um, my generation, your generation, the old timers. Um, they, there's a, um, there's, there's a fallacy, I don't want to call it a fallacy, there's a um, inherent avoidance of IBO mentioned because there are too many sanctioning bodies. Um, boxing, boxing started with, listen, I, I'm, I'm the older generation. First fight I went to was in 1952 in, in, in Madison Square Garden with my father. Um, there was one champ back in those days, there was one champion, 
eight divisions. Uh, then there became a second sanctioning. Over the years, there was a second sanctioning body, then a third, then a fourth, and the IBO being the fifth. So I understand the confusion. Uh, unless you're a diehard boxing fan, it's pretty hard to follow uh, who the champion is. And that, 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 that was carried to extremes. Now, instead of just one champion per sanctioning body, there was two, then three, then four, then five. And even, even the most diehard fans didn't know. Uh, boxing lost a lot of fans because of the confusion created by the multiplicity of champions. Right. Uh, even I couldn't name, you know, my, my friends who follow boxing would, would say to me, who's the champion of certain division? I said, well, I can't give you a direct answer to that. Uh, there may be two, three, four, or five, or, or more, or ten. So the current state of boxing has, over the past decades, um, is to the point where we have what we have now. Four major sanctioning bodies, a fifth sanctioning body being the IBO, which is not considered a, quote, major sanctioning body. And uh, what I see in boxing today is more and more control by the sanctioning bodies mm -hmm. and less and less control by promoters, managers, and, and uh, boxers. Yeah. Uh, sanctioning, sanctioning bodies, just to a large degree, have become governing bodies. There's a difference between the two, uh, between a governing body and a sanctioning body. A governing body, in my view, is a commission. Right. In an ideal world, there'd be one commission for the United States that would control boxing. It's never going to happen in my lifetime or your guys, in my opinion anyway. Uh, but boxing uh, is now controlled to a large degree by the major sanctioning bodies and the major promoters and platforms that work with them. Yeah. Uh, Jack, would you disagree with anything I've said so far? No, I agree with what you said. And myself as a writer, I've been somewhat guilty of not mentioning the IBO at times when oh. I could have, you know, as well. And going forward, that's going to make me a little more aware. But I haven't wanted to mention in a lot of my reports the other sanctioning bodies as well. But you're kind of obligated to do it. But I, I like to go on who I feel is the legitimate champion could division, the person who stands out like far and away uh, but but there are different champions in different divisions but i think the way the ibo can join the other sanctioning bodies as far as being a fifth wheel and get a certain type of parity i think if you get a superstar like a canelo alvarez who says i'm only fighting for the ibo i don't care about the other belts to unify it all i'm willing to fight the other champions but they can keep their belts all I want is the IBO belt. All of a sudden, that gets the IBO a certain parity. Now, it's interesting looking at the IBO champions. There's certain big-name fighters on there, like a Gennady Golovkin, okay? I mean, those are the type of fighters, like if they hold an IBO title but don't hold a sanctioning body belt from, you know, the other organizations, that makes the IBO stand out, I think, a little more. But when there are no names as the champions, when I mean 
fighters who don't have a recognizable name, I don't think that helps the IBO. I don't think it helps with the credibility if we don't know really who the fighter is. Okay, I agree with what you're saying to some degree, but uh, the way boxing is set up now, um, well, first of all, there have been fighters that have met that criteria and nothing changed. Uh, if you'll recall uh, when, um, uh, when Roy Jones Jr. fought Tarver, Antonio Tarver, uh, Tarver had, I think, you can look this up on Boxer, Tarver had three belts and he was being told who he should be. He had a mandatory or he was being told who he had to fight next. And Antonio Tarver says, I'm not fighting those mandatories. I have a chance to fight Roy Jones Jr. here. So I'm going to fight Roy Jones Jr. only for the IBO title. Because that's monetarily and fiscally the most responsible thing for me. So he didn't fight for the, his defenders other titles. He defended only he fought for only for the IBO title beat Roy Jones and held, I don't know for how many fights, held only the IBO world title. Now, how many writers mentioned that? Very few. So it's which like- of the th Which of the uh, three, three fights was it? Um, hold on, I'll find out. Erica, would you look up Antonio Tarver and find out, I want chronolo chronologically, his fights against Roy Jones Jr. when they when they started. Um, so, um, you know, first of all, I agree with what a lot of what you're saying, Jack. Um, people say, well, why why don't more people recognize? Why don't you get better champions? And the the reason is there's a monopoly out there. Sure, boxing the way it works today whether you recognize it or not, is controlled by a very small number of promoters, managers, and platforms. And they, what, what boxing the way it is today works for them. This is, whether we like it or not, or whether we want it to stay that way or not, it works for those who are at the top. They don't want fighters they don't want to be interfered. There is a monopoly. There's no question about that. No, yeah, there's no, no doubt. No, no, but that isn't it self-serving for any sanctioning body to have a different champion. Let's say all five sanctioning bodies, the other four and yours, had the same champion. The sanctioning bodies wouldn't stand out if they all had the same champions. It kind of benefits them or they need different champions basically to stay in business. Well, you, you know, you're you're an idealist again. You want one champion, um, and that's in today's era. That's rarely going to happen. Um, well, not only, not only that, Ed. I think if that was the case, then mandatorily, and this is why they think you need a commissioner. Every heavyweight in each division should have to fight each other. The champion of each division. Should have to to fight each other. If you're gonna if you're gonna have a playoff game in, in any sport, the best of the best fight each other. If you're gonna have them fight in just their own in their own uh, sanction and body, if you're just gonna have people from uh, uh, from from Aram's uh, organization fight people from Aaron's organization, that does nothing for the overall boxing uh, world. I mean, it's great for him, but it's not great for everybody else. So this is why. This is 
Yeah, go this ahead. is why some major promoters have said, have intimated or even said, we're going to ditch the sanctioning bodies. We're just, we want the best fighters to fight each other. Right. But the, but the mandatories aren't necessarily set up that way. So what happens is you get a mandatory, uh, f- a mandatory fight that interferes with, look at the heavyweights. I mean, yeah. how many heavyweights have tried to be, become the only champion? It's, it's because of mandatories, uh, it's become it's become almost impossible to do it. Um, I agree with, in theory, everything you're both saying. One champion per division, the four best fight the uh, each other, and you have one champion. It's it's going to be a, a rarity. Where does the IPO stand on mandatories and and enforcing them? Okay, here's the first of all. Most people think that we don't have mandatories. We do have mandatories. Uh, however, we don't enforce mandatories unless that champion is not fighting quality opposition. Period. If a champion is fighting the best f- possible opposition and the best for him financially, promotionally, and every other way, and then we won't impose a mandatory. Just won't. Well, that, that's a great attitude to have. In the case, Usyk is your heavyweight champion, I believe, the IBO champion. Yes. And when he gets done with the rematch with Joshua, whoever wins that fight, I mean, logically, if they could fight Tyson Fury next, that's the fight to make. Absolutely. But one of the sanctioning bodies is going to say the winner of that fight has to fight. They're mandatory. They're going to get stripped and... So I like the IBO's attitude. If it's the best opponent out there, offers the most money, you don't enforce a mandatory, you know, situation. So that's a good attitude to take on behalf of the IBO. And we and we will also do eliminators. Right. Uh, we have two fighters on a um, on an even level, both similar similarly ranked, and the champion uh, uh, is hasn't been there's been no mandatory champions fighting good fighters but we feel it's certain fighters that have reached a certain level uh we will we will do eliminators but not not a lot i think we let like to let the marketplace and what the fans want to see dictate mandatories As how a- frustrating and how frustrating is it we would touched upon it a little before is the IBO not quite being able to take the next step in joining the big four, always being on the outside, but, you know, being noticed, but being on the outside? It, well, I've developed thick skin over 20 years. <laughs> That's one way to, to describe yeah. it. Listen, um, when, when, when people compare the IBO to other sanctioning bodies, when they say, there's the big four, and then there are all the others. Well, you as someone who's really, who knows boxing, there are no others. It's the big four and the IBO. You, the others, alphabet numbers, they don't have any meaningful fights, any meaningful champions. Any, but meanwhile, we're thrown in that same descript. Oh, it's the big four. That's it. And, and, more, and some boxing writers... We'll mention the IBO now that we've we've reached that level, but uh, as far as when we're grouped with all the others, I mean that's that's like that's like crazy. Um, 
I be, I've always believed and still do believe that we're the most fundamentally sound sanctioning body there is. I, I don't want to be part of the big four. I've never wanted the IBO to be part of the big four. The word parity is a different system. The big four have agreements amongst themselves, right. as you know. They have formal written agreements in their rules and agreements that rotation of mandatories, whose turn it is, what it, it they're they're uh, set up to keep boxing within their their those four those four sanctioning bodies. That's just that it's not a secret. You, you can read anything you want in their rules, and you'll see it. Uh, they will never mention the IBO. They will they will um, they will rank our fighters, our champions. If we have a good champion, they'll put them in their rankings because they like that champion to to be. It's almost like saying that that's not a champion. He's number five, or he's number three, or he's number two. Um, the I think there's there's an analogy that I can give you. Do either of you play golf or watch golf or know anything about golf? No, I've watched some golf. Don't play. Okay. There's four major championships. Yeah. Okay. Use tennis. I'm a bigger tennis fan. I'll do, I'll do that too. Major ones, yeah. Oh, really? Okay, I'll do both. Okay. So in in box in uh, golf, there's the U.S. Open, there's the Masters, there's the PGA, and there's the British Open. Four ma four majors. But there's also another tournament called the Players Champion. That's called the fifth major. Now in tennis, I've never thought of this before, but in tennis. You have uh, Wimbledon, you have the U.S. Open, you have the Australian Open, and the French Open. More or less correct. I'm not just doing that off the cuff. Um, does that mean that someone fights for another championship that it's not a major? Well, I don't think so. Not today. There's, there's other major championships in, in every sport that are recognized as champions. Uh, I mean, I've gone, gone off on a little side path here. But, <laughs> Listen, Ed, I'm gonna I'm gonna run for commissioner of boxing, and this is how I'd set it up. Okay. You guys each you guys each have your champion in each division. When they okay. finish fighting each other, the next contender in each division steps up to fight the champion, and it just keeps rotating like that all the time. This way, we know who the champions are. We know who the contenders are again. And even with five sanctioning bodies, we still can follow it. And as far as jumping off in, in different divisions like Canelo does, it would be acceptable in rare instances, and that's it. I want to see boxing come back to where we know who the champion is. I don't care if there's 10 sanctioning bodies. I want to know the best fighters in each sanctioning body, and then they can fight, and then the next contenders in each sanctioning body step up. Real simple makes it fun again and everybody gets credit and i don't care about bob arum i don't care about don king promote who's in your sanctioning body where you work as you're supposed to but the only way that will ever happen is if there's a a national commission and that's not I, i'm the commissioner i'm going to be the commissioner ed well, that's that's not, that's, that won't happen the last the last person i try to convince to do that um um the who recently passed away? The, the uh, um, he was the uh, United States Senate, Arizona. What's his name? Uh, the, oh, Harry uh, Reid. 
No, uh, the one who was in the war was a prisoner. For, oh, John McCain. Yes, so I reached out to John McCain probably uh, 15, 20 years ago and told him the state of boxing at that time and actually got a response and because he was a boxing fan and he, he used to go to boxing, loved boxing. And I said, there's a need in this country for a, a national um, commission to oversee. Right now, they're all state commissions that oversee boxing in their state. Uh, he was interested, but it didn't go anywhere. But the only way you get to see what you want to see is with a, a, a national or a worldwide commission. That, that's not going to happen. But back to the IBO, uh, maybe a way to raise the IBO's profile would be at raising your profile. How about you getting out a little more front and center? Mauricio Suleiman does it with the WBC. Darrell Peoples doesn't do it with the IBF. You don't see That's him right. too much around. And the WBA and WBO are basically non-United States entities, okay, for the most part with their leadership. But have you ever thought about raising your profile, being in the ring, you know, giving a bell, talking to the media a little more. I mean, has exactly. I did that at first. Uh, the first four or five years I did that. Um, I actually went to almost a lot of the IBO world title fights and had uh, lunches, dinners with the press, uh, with the boxing writers. Um, I went out of my way to talk to them the way we're talking today. But that, that, at that, during that era, it was almost impossible. Uh, they were so set in their ways that, uh, and rightfully so, the, the feedback I got is there's too many sanctioning bodies. We don't want another sanctioning body. You can be the best leader of a sanctioning body. You can have the best sanctioning body. No, no more sanctioning bodies. And I understood that at the time. And it was illogical. Their response was not illogical. Their response was totally acceptable. As the years went by and I backed off because I saw this, I'm getting nowhere with this. This is, this is in their brains that they're stopping it. They're drawing a line in the sand. It is what it is. And it's going to stay. We don't even want four, let alone five. But then over the years, as four world champions became eight, 12, 16, and different aluminum titles, gold, silver, bronze, uh, uh, you know, and all kinds of different world titles. It became worse and worse and worse. And my plea to, you know, that we're a legitimate, fundamentally sound sanctioning body that doesn't do the things you dislike fell on deaf ears. No, no more sanctioning bodies. That's what I face. So I stopped doing it. Now, now everything is in social media. And, and social media is what we try to concentrate on because yeah, yeah. the old school is gone. People don't read newspapers anymore. Yeah, it's Santos on. I mean, I used to read the Miami Herald every morning. I don't read the Miami Herald every morning. Uh, uh, people used to, uh, um, the whole press thing has changed. You know, now you've got, uh, uh, there used to be a, a core, every major city had a, a core boxing writer who wrote for that newspaper. And I try to concentrate on those core writers 20 years ago. They're all gone. You know, typically they're, they're just gone. Um, 
I wanted to answer your earlier question. I just was handed this on Tarver and Jones. Okay. Um, Roy Jones, Fort Tarver in 2003. There were three titles on the line. Then the next fight, Tarver Fort Roy Jones in 2004, also three titles. Well, here's a challenge. It's probably the third fight because he'd beaten Jones the second fight, so he commanded, my guess is, a certain amount of power where he could call the shots and say, I'm fighting for the IBO title. I Correct. would have the other because his name was so big at that point. Correct. That would uh, be my guess. Yeah. Your guess is 100% right. So what yeah. happened is then he then he wanted to fight. Uh, he then fought Glenn Johnson only for the IBO title. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. When you see, when you're that big a name like Canelo Alvarez, think he could just yes. decide, I'm only fighting for the IBO title. I couldn't care less. And he could have a title attached to his name and still be as big as ever. He would fight for other titles, but then he could announce, I'm giving up the other title. That's I just want to win exactly. it and I'll give it up, but I'm not giving up the IBO title. But what are the chances of but finding to, someone like you, that? But to your point, you said if we did that, we would get more recognition. It didn't happen. Not not only did he beat Glenn Johnson, uh, he, he then – he. he he beat Glenn Johnson. He fought Glenn Johnson twice. He lost to Glenn Johnson the first time, then beat Correct. him in a rematch. He, him. he wasn't of Canelo's stature, though. Right. But then he beat Roy Jones Jr. in 2005 in Florida, only for the IBO title. I was at that fight, yeah. yeah. And then he fought Bernard Hopkins, only for the IBO title. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So he had a progression of only IBO titles over a period of two or three years. Uh, and he was, um, his attitude was, I'm going to fight the fights to make me the most money. Yeah. And logically so. Um, but just, I know we're going to run out of time here, but just yes. another, ask yourself one question. Why do all these great champions who fought for us over the years, why do they fight? Why do they want the IBO title even when they have others? Be aware that they want the IBO title because they know it's not going to be, they're not going to have a mandatory imposed upon them, take it away from them. B, if they're, if they're, if they're told to fight somebody they don't want to, as Jack just said, they'll just drop the other title and take the one that's most monetarily rewarding that the fans want to see. And, and C, they know that when they negotiate, they have that title no matter what. It helps them negotiate their position. So we have dozens of marquee champions over the years who've held our titles. They're not stupid. Their management wasn't stupid. They, they, uh, Golovkin, 20 defenses. Klitschko, 20 de defenses. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Lennox Lewis, they wanted the IBO title. It was a, a staple, something that they know they had. And it was theirs. And until they lost it in the ring, they weren't going to lose it. Wait, I'm going to let you finish up on that note. Uh, Thank you very as, much. As you said. And, and listen, pleasure having you on. It's great to get uh, a lot of inside information, confirm some of the things that I already knew and Jack knows. But a lot of people don't. 
And it's glad, great to have people and guests like you Thank on you sharing your knowledge. And we appreciate you coming in. And hopefully we'll get you back on. If we get a, we get a big title match and IBO's on, on the line, we're going to get a hold of you again, Ed. We appreciate that it. would be my pleasure. Nice to see you again, Jack. Take care. Same here. Stay well. Bye-bye. Take care. So there you go, folks. Ed Levine from IBO. We're out of time. we got another show coming up behind us. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. Have a great day.